Right, okay, let's, let's just pray before we start. <clears throat> Father, we ask now that your Holy Spirit will be our teacher. Father, we pray that you'll just open our eyes and give us the understanding that we need. Lord, we're completely dependent upon you, and Lord, we're, we're so in need of, of understanding and, and living according to your word. And so, Lord, we ask now, in the name of Jesus, that you'll just really enable us to just take in what you want to say and that your word will really make a difference to our lives. Because we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Right, well, as Robert said, we're, we're starting a series tonight on the whole area of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, there are going to be quite a few talks, and by and large, this will, on this Tuesdays, take us through until around about Christmas. should be just before Christmas, if all goes according to plan. This year, yes. Yes, it will be Christmas this year. Right, <clears throat> well, if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, And then in actual fact tonight, we're not going to dive straight in to sort of finding out uh, in detail what the gifts of the Spirit are. Tonight we're going to do a talk by way of an introduction. And the reason that I'm going to do this is that when Paul starts talking about the gifts of the Spirit, he doesn't just dive in, he gives an introduction to it at all. And often people are so keen to you know, read about the gifts of the Spirit that the verses preceding them, which are very, very important, do, do rather get left out. So we're not going uh, to make that mistake tonight. Let, let's start by actually reading 1 Corinthians 12, and we'll read from verse 1 to 11. <coughs> And it's Paul talking to the church at Corinth, and he says this. He says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were heathen, you were led astray to dumb idols, however you may have been moved. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking by the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of working, but it is the same God who inspires them all in every one. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, <clears throat> to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, <coughs> to another the ability to distinguish between spirits or the discernment of spirits as some people know it as, to another various kinds of tongues and to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are inspired <clears throat> by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Now, Paul's introduction really is uh, sort of from verse 1 down to verse 6 and we're go uh, to verse 7. And we're going to go by this uh, ver through it verse by verse because there are some very important things 
in it. Now, first of all, in the first verse, he says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be uninformed. There are two things there, and the first one is that it's a wrong translation. But the reason that it's a wrong translation is because it wouldn't make any sense at all if you translated it literally in the Greek. And to make it make sense, the translators have put a word in there that isn't there in the original Greek. And the word that they've put in is gifts. It does not say in the original when Paul wrote, now concerning spiritual gifts. It literally means now concerning spirituals. Now they've put gifts in there so you know what you're talking about. But it's important to understand what, what's sort of going on here because the actual word uh, where they translate it spiritual <coughs> gifts but the gifts isn't there. That's just been interpolated in the English. The Greek word is pneumatikos. Pneumatikos. And it's not even a verb. Alright, it's an adjective, and it literally means spiritualities. That's the literal meaning of the word. It's an adjective, a descriptive word, it's spiritualities. And this word, pneumatikos, is used in the Bible of anything pertaining to our spiritual lives. So a spirituality in the Bible is anything pertaining to the Christian life. Prayer is a pneumatikos, it's a spirituality. Uh, Bible teaching is a pneumatikos, it's a spirituality. Growing in the Lord is whatever, anything that comes out of genuine discipleship is a spirituality. It's a pneumatikos according to the Bible. Now the important thing to realise is this. The Bible uses this word of the gifts of the Spirit. And that what we need to understand is that in the same way that prayer is normal to the Christian life, in the same way that Bible study is normal to the Christian life, in the same way that growing in the Lord is normal in the Christian life, so are the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The gifts of the Holy Spirit, biblically, are merely a spirituality, the same as prayer and Bible study. They are part and parcel of the normal biblical Christian life. Now what we've got to understand is that that means that they are not special. Now the reason I'm emphasizing this is because of the way that many, many Christians think of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. They seem to think that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are on some highfalutin spiritual plane that is only attained by the chosen few. You know, by super-Christians. You know, is it a bird? Is it a plane? Oh, it's a bird. No, it's super It's super-Christian. You see, no, the gifts of the Spirit are not some highfalutin spiritual plane whatsoever. The gifts of the Spirit are as ordinary in the Bible as prayer, Bible study, or anything else. Now, the big mistake that we've made is that we've had them way up there. The gifts of the Spirit. Oh, oh, the gifts of the Spirit. Little heart flutter. You know, oh, good, oh, the gifts of the Spirit. And we've had them so high that for many, many people, they've become unattainable. But the reason that they've become unattainable to the, the standard, you know, 
you know, like you and me, the, the kind of common or garden yobs in the kingdom. <laughs> the reason that they've become, you know, become unattainable to us isn't because they are unattainable, but because Satan's convinced us that they are unattainable. Therefore, you don't really seriously go for them. Can you see the important thing about this? That the gifts of the Spirit are for all of us. And as we proceed through this series of talks, we're going to be seeing that the gifts of the Spirit are for each one of us. They're not for the chosen few. They're not for special Christians. You know, they're not for, you know, sort of, you know, as I say, super Christian or anything like that at all. They're for each individual child of God. They're not special. Don't, I mean, they're special because God does them, but everything God does is special. Bible study is special. Prayer is special. But the point is, get them lumped together in the nitty-gritty of your Christian life where they belong. They are a normal part of the Christian life, not on some hyperplane, uh, in, you know, in the way that some people speak as if they are. Now, the second thing, all right, he says this now concerning spiritualities, and of course they knew what he was talking about because they, they read, you know, the letter in its original language. But he says, I do not want you to be uninformed. Now, it's very important that we as Christians are informed. It's tremendously important. There is only one thing that the Bible encourages believers to be ignorant about, and that is evil. The Bible says be babes in evil. And it says be babes in evil because babes are ignorant. You know, I mean, sort of, you know, those of you with a little sort of two-year-old baby, I mean, they don't really know what's going on in the world today, do they? I mean, the six o'clock news, you know, sort of doesn't, it doesn't really mean very much to them. But they're ignorant. That's, that's the beauty of children. In many ways, their innocence is due to ignorance. Now, the Bible says that we must be ignorant about evil, but that is all. The Bible counsels us to gain as much knowledge as we can about the Lord and about everything, every aspect of the Lord and his work. In Hosea chapter 4 verse 6, the prophet, God said to Israel through his prophet Hosea, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. Because of course Israel was the nation that was to mediate between God and the Gentile nations. And because they rejected knowledge, they got lazy. They didn't want to come to grips with the things that God wanted them to know. Therefore, because of that lack of knowledge, it destroyed them. They didn't know what to do. And therefore God said, well, look, you're useless to me. I can't use you as a nation to the Gentiles because you haven't got any knowledge. You don't even know what it is that you're supposed to be doing. And that... It's very easy to think that because we're Christians that are kind of, you know, well, we, we don't want to go into things too deeply, do we, Beresford? All right. Well, it does depend on how many brain cells you've got. But I'll tell you, if you learn to use both of them, then you'll probably find that you can, in fact, have more understanding than perhaps you thought. Think of Moses. Now, do you remember Moses dumped in the wilderness for 40 years, all right, got a vision from God, stepped out in the flesh, mucked it up totally, all right, dumped in the wilderness for 40 years, looking after sheep, and that was all. And then one day, he's going about his business, looking after the sheep, and he sees a bushfire. Now, that's not unusual in the desert. You know, the bushes, they die, dry out, and they catch fire, no problem. But he sat and watched this bushfire burning for yonks. 
And of course, a bushfire is over very, very quickly. You know, the little bush, the shrub, it catches fire, and of course it's gone in a few moments. And he was looking at this bush, and it was burning and burning and burning, but the bush wasn't burning away. There was something very, very odd about that bush. Now then, listen to what Moses said. He said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. Can you see Moses' curiosity there? I will turn away, aside to this sight, and see why the bush is not burnt. And it was when he had turned aside to it, it was when he went to find out what was going on, then, and only then, God spoke to him out of that burning bush. And Moses received the knowledge that he needed for the next phase in his life of following the Lord and the ministry that God had called him to. Now, in the same way that Moses turned aside because he wanted to know, can you see how important it is for us to be all the time turning aside because we want to know. And it's when we do turn aside to find out from the Lord what's going on that you will find very, very often that it is then, then, when God will actually speak to you. But God doesn't like laziness, whether it's uh, physical laziness or whether it's intellectual laziness. Now, I mean, I know not everyone's a boffin. That's not what I'm talking about, okay? I know there are people here with 10 brain cells and the rest of us only have a couple. But you see, the point is that nevertheless, each one of us have got to be giving it our best shot and really coming uh, to grips with the Word of God, finding out what God is saying to us, and then through that knowledge, we'll find that God is actually leading us in a clearer and clearer way. So we need to turn aside, and when we do that, when we go after knowledge, when we say, look, I'm going to be informed. There's a thousand things I don't know about what the Lord's doing. There's a thousand things that I don't understand about salvation but by Jiminy you can say to yourself by Jiminy I know it's in the Bible and I'm gonna find out and it will be then in that turning aside that God speaks to us and tells us what it is that we need to know now this thing about God speaking to us brings us on quite naturally to verse 2 now let's read verse 2 he says you know that when you were heathen you were led astray to dumb idols, however you may have been moved. Now, remember here, Paul is leading up to talking about the gifts of the Spirit. And many of the people in the Corinthian church were Greeks. And they had been converted out of idolatry, you know, bowing down to these statues and worshipping them and praying to them and stuff like that. Now, why would Paul start talking about idols in this context? Well, there's something very important here. The Hebrew word for idol is Elil, all right, Elil. And it means a vanity. That's the literal translation, like in Ecclesiastes, oh, everything is vanity, it's all empty, it's all meaningless. And it means vanity, a thing of naught, a nothing, an absolute nothing. Because after all, that's what an idol is. An idol is simply a statue. There's no God behind it. Well, it's a demon behind it, but idols aren't gods. They are a mere nothing. And in the Greek, the word for idol is eidolon, and that means mere likeness, or it can also mean a phantom. Blue, you know, <laughs> ghosty, a phantom. 
That is what the word actually means. And the thing about a phantom or a ghosty is that there's no reality behind it because, of course, there aren't any ghosts. There's no such things. Evil spirits pretending to be ghosts, but, of course, there are no ghosts. And the point is that these idols are absolutely nothing. There's no reality at the back of them. They are not the real thing. And, of course, the final proof that idols aren't the real thing, the final proof that an idol isn't a real god, is that idols are dumb, aren't they? You can sit in front of an idol all evening, and you can pray to it, you can beseech it, you can dance round it, you can sing pagan choruses to it, and I tell you, when you go home having done that, you will not have heard a word from that idol. It won't have moved its lips, all right? Because idols don't speak. And the fact that they can't speak is the final proof that they aren't real. So therefore, Paul is saying, we know that idols who aren't real gods aren't real gods because they're dumb. They don't speak. Therefore... What is going to be one of the things that distinguishes the true God from an idol? And you see, this is vitally important because today, the important question, and this has been all through time, but especially today, the important question isn't just, is God there? I mean, that's one question. That's got to be answered. But the real question isn't just, is God there? The real question is, can he speak? Can God talk to people? Can you see, he'd be pretty irrelevant if he didn't. His reality depends on his speaking. People hearing him speak to them. Now, some years ago, Time magazine in the States, when, uh, you know, the modernists were kind of coming to the fore and you had the death of God theology and stuff like that, incidentally, the... The death of God theology was never saying that God died, <laughs> you know, so, you know, a bad bout of flu or something. It was simply saying that now we know that God never existed, all right? That was the point about the death of God. Not saying he literally died, but now we know that God never existed, all right? And they ran this. Time magazine really homed in on it. But then in the 70s, especially in regards to the Jesus freaks, do you remember the revival amongst young people in the States in the 70s? They started to run a story on the question, is God coming back to life again, you see? You know, so they'd done God is dead, and then they started to run, is he coming back to life again? But the question they asked was this. They asked, can one believe in a God who hasn't spoken to anyone sane in 2,000 years? Now, I mean, that is in actual fact a pretty silly thing to say, but can you see the point that they're making? They're saying that the reality of God has got to be tied up with whether or not he speaks. Now the thing is that traditional Christianity, <laughs> sadly, is that we've presented to the world a God who really is rather like the dumb idols that Paul is speaking about here. We've tended to present the likeness of God. We've told people the doctrines. All right, We've been right to do so, by the way. But we've kind of presented the likeness, the doctrine, the um, essence of God, if you like, rather than God himself. And of course, because we haven't shown people the power 
He's come over rather like one of these phantoms uh, that can be a meaning for the Greek word for idol. And of course what's happened is the, the world hasn't seen the power of God and therefore they've seen him as having been a phantom that they now say that secular humanism has at last exorcised. We've laid the ghost, they say, and now it's a completely irrelevant question. Now can you see the Christian church in this country has had a silent God? Can you see? We've had our doctrines, we've had our beliefs, but we've had a silent God. And the world needs not just God to be there, but the world needs God to speak. Now the reason that the world needs that is because that is how God has created us. When you turn to John's Gospel, what's the first thing you read there in the beginning was the Word. Can you see? God wants to speak. It's in his nature to express himself, to demonstrate himself. And through the gifts of the Holy Spirit, as we are going to see, the gifts of the Spirit are one of the major ways in which God speaks powerfully into the world. It's through the gifts of the Holy Spirit that God actually involves himself in a definite way in ordinary situations. That's what God wants to do. He actually wants to involve himself and do things in our ordinary, everyday situation. And he wants to do them through the gifts of the Spirit. We're saying about God speaking, but of course, as we all know, actions speak louder than words. God wants to actually act. He wants to do things, all right? And when Paul is here contrasting the gifts of the Spirit with the dumb idols that the Greek converts here have been used to. Can you see what Paul's saying? He's saying your past experience was of nothing because the idols weren't gods, they couldn't speak. He says, but now, he says, now you are disciples of the living God. And it's not just that God wants to speak, but that God wants to speak into the world and into our lives through you, the corporate body of Christ in the city of Corinth. That's what Paul was saying. Now, can you see the gifts of the Spirit? They're not the only way, but they are one of the ways in which God wants to really speak into the normal, everyday human situations that we're involved in. And not, as we shall see, just amongst Christians. The gifts of the Spirit are also for us to minister to unbelievers as well, but we'll be coming on to that in later weeks. Now, verse 3. He goes on to say, therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking by the Spirit of God ever says Jesus be cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, the significance of that often eludes people. Because people say that people like Jehovah's Witnesses and, you know, sort of people like that, but, but they say Jesus is Lord. But they're not Christians, but the, here, you know, Jesus is, you see. And people don't understand what it means, because this phrase, Lord, kurios, this, this word had great significance in the Corinthian church, in fact, in the then known world at that day. And I'll tell you why, because the world was under the rule of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire practiced emperor worship. You had to worship the emperor as God. Therefore, the phrase was, Caesar, or whoever the 
you know, the bloke in charge, Julius, or whichever king it was, emperor it was, you have to say, Julius is Lord. And it meant the emperor is God. So this phrase, Jesus is Lord, is quite specific. It's saying that no one can say Jesus is God except by the Holy Spirit. And of course, people like Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, they don't believe he was God. So can you see, this is the important thing. But what Paul is doing here is that he is immediately bringing in the centrality of Jesus and the fact that the Holy Spirit only wants to glorify Jesus. We're going to find that this is tremendously important if we are to embark on ministering the gifts of the Spirit in safety, we're going to be seeing lots and lots of safety measures that the Bible gives us. They're going to help us to, you know, sort of stop going too wrong. I mean, of course, we'll make mistakes, but they'll stop us going up the old gum tree. And this is one of them. It's seeing that here we have the centrality of Jesus and the desire of the Holy Spirit to glorify him. Because the result of the Spirit in your life is that you glorify Jesus as being God. Go to John chapter 16. Keep your fingers in 1 Corinthians 12 because we're going to be back there. But if you go to John, John's Gospel chapter 16, I'm going to read three verses. <clears throat> First of all, verse 14, and then 16 and 17. Now listen to this. This is Jesus speaking. Now he's speaking about the Holy Spirit. He says, He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now can you see, there Jesus is simply saying, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to glorify me. And he says that what the Holy Spirit is going to tell you in the future is simply going to be him passing on what I have said and what Father has said because the Holy Spirit only wants to glorify Jesus now go to verse 16 um, oh, no not verse 16 oh hang on I've got lost a little bit now just have a pause um, Oh, that, that's right. Um, it's, it's the bit I want where he says, I will send you another comforter. I've written the wrong verses down. Does anyone know where that is offhand? I'm pretty sure it is in John 16. Um, uh, seven. Verse 7. That's right. Yes, jolly good. Thanks, Ed. Yeah, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the counsellor will not come to you. That isn't the one I want, actually. This is most embarrassing. It's where he says, another comforter. Perhaps it's in 14. It's 14, yeah. 16. 14, verse 16. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Thank you very much. I wrote the wrong chapter down. Yeah, in chapter 14 and verse 16. And Jesus says, I will pray the Father, and he will give you another counsellor to be with you forever even the spirit of truth. Now, there are three things that I want you to get in these, that verse that we've just read. And the first one is this. Jesus said to them, I am going to send you another comforter. Jesus was the comforter to the disciples when he was on earth. But when speaking about the eventual coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, he said, I am going to send you another comforter. Now, you see, in the Greek, there are two different words for another. 
and they're different. One is heteros and one is allos. Now, let me demonstrate the difference. Say you had a car, alright, you've got a car here, okay, and it's a Volkswagen Sirocco. You'll, you'll get to know the sort of cars I like now. And then you say, here's another car, alright, over here, and it's a Toyota Sleeker. Now, that would be heteros. And it means another, but of a different kind. Can you see? One car, another car, but of completely different kind. Heteros, alright? That is not the word that Jesus used. Now, let's assume that I said, here's a car, and we've got a beautiful brand spanking new Honda Prelude. And then I said, here we've got another one, and there's another brand spanking new uh, Herald, uh, Prelude, Honda Prelude. Honda Prelude. <laughs> then, that is the word allos, and it means another of exactly the same kind. Now therefore, when Jesus said that he was going to send them another comforter to be with them forever, he's specifically saying, and the comforter that I will send to you will be exactly what I am to you. The word is allos, exactly the same kind. Now the second thing to notice is this word comforter or counsellor, as it is in some translations. The Greek word is paraclete, and it means one who draws alongside. It can also mean a defence lawyer. But the idea being it's someone there who is there specifically to help you. Now this Greek word paraclete, Jesus says, I will send you another comforter, it's paraclete, speaking of the Holy Spirit. But in 1 John 2 verse 1, we have this. John says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, what's significant about that is that the Greek word advocate is paraclete. It is exactly the same word that Jesus used when talking about the Holy Spirit being the comforter. So the thing is, Jesus was the comforter. Then the Holy Spirit was going to be the comforter. Here, advocate, and we're told that Jesus is our advocate, is exactly the same word as comforter. It's paraclete. Now we're going to be putting these together in just a moment. And then the third thing to notice is that Jesus said that the Holy Spirit of truth was going to be with us forever. Alright? He said he will be with you forever. And yet, in Matthew 28 verse 20, Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always till the end of the age. You see, what we've got here is the fact that there is no genuine experience of the Holy Spirit that is not an experience of Jesus himself. Because the Holy Spirit is the means whereby Jesus reveals himself to us now. Now this doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is Jesus in another form. Of course not. The Holy Spirit is a quite separate person from Jesus and from Father. But the point is it's through the agency and power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus makes himself known to us and moves in our lives. So the thing is that the Holy Spirit, everything he does, including his gifts, everything that he does is going to make us more aware of the glory and the lordship of Jesus himself. Now can you see what an important test this is? One thing that we're, we're realising how important it is to, to have firmly in our heads is that the test that matters isn't does it work, it's is it biblical? 
Because out there in the charismatic movement, there are miracles flying around all, all over the place. But I'll tell you, don't dare assume that Jesus is doing them all. There's only one way to find out whether Jesus is doing them. Which ones are of Jesus and which ones are satanic counterfeits. And that's by testing it according to the Bible. And one of the tests that the Bible gives us is, do they glorify Jesus? Or are some of the miracles going on out there simply glorifying the people who are ministering them and in fact leading people into false teaching as well? Can you see, the Holy Spirit has only one desire. He wants to glorify Jesus. And everything he does, he wants people to bow the knee to Jesus and to see how wonderful he is. The Holy Spirit only wants to be emphasized in the context of glorifying Jesus. So at the moment, the Holy Spirit is quite happy that I'm talking to you about the Holy Spirit. But the reason he's happy that I'm talking about him is because I'm reminding us that he only wants to glorify Jesus. What the Holy Spirit does not like is talk about him, period. Now you listen to a lot of Christian terminology on the scene today, alright? And I'm going to ask you, just keep your eyes, first of all, do it yourself. But start listening to Christians out there and ask yourself this question. How much are they talking about the Holy Spirit and how much are they talking about Jesus? Because when people talk about the Holy Spirit too much, there's danger. There's danger. Because the Holy Spirit doesn't cause people to talk about Him. The Holy Spirit causes people to talk about and to glorify Jesus and to show how wonderful Jesus is. Not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is wonderful. Of course He is. He's great. But He doesn't want to be emphasized. He wants Jesus to be emphasized and he will do nothing that glorifies anyone or anything except Jesus himself. Spurgeon says something wonderful. He said, I looked to Jesus and the dove of peace flew into my heart. I looked at the dove and he flew away. Now that is exactly the position that the Holy Spirit takes. And you see, with the gifts of the Spirit, our only motive in using them must be that we glorify Jesus and that we do not glorify ourselves. It's not a question if God uses us in a gift of sort of saying to ourselves or each other, oh, oh, aren't you wonderful? And it's very easy to do. Uh, I mean, sort of sometimes, uh, you know, sort of when you meet someone who has a very specific, miraculous ministry, you see Christians, and I've done it myself, but God's delivering me of this, but I've done it myself, in awe of them. It's not them you're supposed to be in awe of, it's Jesus. And can you see how easy it is? You know, sort of maybe, you know, the Lord gives us a ministry and that's right. But in our hearts, really, what we're doing is that we're using it to glorify ourselves. We want people to think, oh, wow. Oh, wow, what a ministry. Oh, God, his faith. Oh, makes my ticker go. Just thinking about it. Can you see? Now, we're very bad at this. We're very, that is glorifying men. It's Jesus doing it through them. It's Jesus doing it. And the glory must, do, must go to Jesus. And again, something else that's very, very easy. It's great that we testify what the Lord has done for us. It's great that we 
testify when God has answered prayer or maybe used us in, uh, say, to heal someone. It's great. It's absolutely valid that we do that. But let us be very, very careful that we don't slip into the trap of becoming though that type of Christian who is always testifying, but somehow you just know that the emphasis of their testimony, that what they're really trying to do in that testimony isn't to point to Jesus. They're trying to emphasize that the Lord did it through them, or that the Lord did it for them. Can you see the danger of this? Um, you've heard of upmanship. You know, there's all kinds of upmanship. Well, there's spiritual upmanship. There's charismatic upmanship. And we've got to guard our hearts against this. Uh, you know, sometimes you get involved in a, you know, sort of like, you know, sort of talking to Christians. And it sort of ends, I mean, maybe someone shares something that God's done, and that's great, no problem. And then someone else does. And then an hour and a half later, everyone is dredging the barrel. <laughs> Because they've got to top that last testimony that he just... No, I'm, I'm not, you know, you're laughing, yeah, amen, we're laughing, it's because we know it's in our hearts, it's in my... Can you see, we've got to be on the guard against this, and what's going to keep us on our guard is realising that the Holy Spirit wants to glorify Jesus, not us. And if he uses you in healing somebody, do you know what I say? Praise the Lord. I don't say, aren't you wonderful? You are wonderful, but not for that reason. You're wonderful for the same reason that I'm wonderful. Sorry to bring your ego crashing down. We're just wonderful to God. But we're not wonderful because God uses us in the gifts of the Spirit. Jesus is wonderful. It's Him doing it, not us. Remember the gifts of the Spirit. And we're trying to keep our feet on the ground here. Remember, it's all been too airy-fairy. Uh, you know, I mean, there's a lot of Christians, when they talk about the gifts of the Spirit, and I say, well, you'll have to excuse me, I've, I've got an appointment back on planet Earth, that it's all very, very feet-on-the-ground stuff. And remember, the gifts of the Spirit, they're only signs and wonders. That's all. Signs. They're only signs. They're signposts. And what are signposts for? To point you beyond them to someone else. The gifts of the Spirit are merely signposts pointing beyond themselves and us to Jesus. Now that is when the gifts of the Spirit are really doing their job. Needs are being met, but Jesus is being glorified. So we need to understand this. The Holy Spirit wants to glorify Jesus. Jesus is absolutely central to the ministry of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But there's even more back into 1 Corinthians 12 now. Something even more fantastic here. And we're interested in verses 4 to 6 now. And you see, we've seen that Jesus is central to it, but what I want to show you now is that every spiritual gift involves the corporate action of the whole Trinity. Now, Verse 4. Now look what Paul says here. He says, There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Now, there, there's the Holy Spirit. And he says, And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. Who's Lord? Jesus is Lord. 
there's Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. And then he goes on to say, and there are varieties of working, but it is the same God, God the Father, who inspires them in all. Now can you see, the gifts of the Spirit are an experience of the complete Godhead. I mean, wow, just think about that for a minute. When little me is babbling away in my little tongues, feeling, oh dear, you know, I wonder if God can ever, you know, oh dear, I'm so small. I'm... When I'm little me and little you are just babbling away in our mere gifts of tongues, like, oh Lord, if only you could use me for greater things. Let me tell you that you are speaking in tongues because the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are working in you together to enable you to do it. Can you see? Let's stop belittling the little gifts that God uses us in. The entire Godhead, the Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit are working together and involved in each spiritual gifts, be they what we might call the big dramatic ones, or little us praying away in tongues, hardly knowing, you know, sort of like what we're praying. Well, that's the idea of speaking in tongues, isn't it? But, can you see that the entire Godhead is involved? And you see, there's something else a bit, because this tells us something about God. And it tells us that all of God is in everything he does. You see, we might think it insignificant when little me maybe speaks in tongues or, or, or whatever. We might think that's insignificant. It's not insignificant. All of God is in that. That's incredible. God puts his whole self in everything he does. He puts his whole self, and God's the only one with three of them, <laughs> Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he puts his whole self into everything he does, even something as insignificant, so we think, although it isn't, as us speaking in tongues. And you see, the thing is, we ought to, you know, sort of take note of that. We ought to put our whole selves a little bit more in what we do. Not just some of what we do, but in whatever we do. Paul says, whatever you turn your hand to, do it with all your might. Whether it's work, whether it's play, whether it's drudge, whether it's fun, put your whole your whole heart into it. I mean, Christians above everyone else should be living hard, playing hard, and loving hard. That's the gospel. That's what Jesus meant when he says, I came that you might have abundant life. Everything, throwing your whole self into it. Don't be half-hearted. God's whole heart is in everything that he does. And we see this in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Let's go on to verse 7, because then Paul goes on to say, To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Right, in verse 7 he says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now, two things there, manifestation, common good. What's that about? Well, first of all, manifestation. The gifts of the Spirit 
are for a manifestation. Now, you get a lot of talk amongst Christians, and fair enough, about demons manifesting themselves, and they do. You know, they get caught short in the presence of Jesus, and they start manifesting themselves. Fine, no problem. But you see, the thing is that we mustn't think that demons, you know, that, that, manif that spiritual manifestation is simply limited to demons. Sure, demons manifest themselves. But you see, the thing is, God wants to as well. God wants to manifest himself as well. And the gifts of the Holy Spirit are that manifestation. The Oxford Concise Dictionary defines manifestation thus, to show plainly to eye or mind, to be evidence of, to prove, or to display by one's acts. That's what a manifestation is. God wants to manifest himself through his people via the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now what that means is this. He wants us to show him plainly to people. He wants to be in evidence amongst us. He wants us to prove him. Malachi, prove me herewith. That's what the Lord said, prove me and see if I won't do it. Prove me. God wants us to do that. And he wants to display himself through acts, through us. He wants to act into the world, displaying his power and his holiness through us. Now the gifts of the Spirit are not the only way that God manifests himself, but they are one way, and they're the way that we are interested in now. Now we've got to deal with an old heresy here. Incidentally, heresy, alright, the word heretic in the Bible, the Greek word means self-opinionated. Heresy starts when people are too arrogant, too full of their own opinions, to knuckle under is what the Bible says. Uh, last week we were talking you know, about the whole thing about the Bible, weren't we? And we were saying we don't want people's opinions, we want God's word. Heresy are when people put their opinions above God's word. But there's a heresy that we've got to, to deal with here, and it's, it, it's our old mate Plato. Alright, Plato. It's Greek philosophy. And you see, the thing, you see, Greek philosophy is important to us, because the early church grew up, I mean, the world that the early church grew up in was politically under the Roman Empire. But philosophically, it still had the leftover of the Greek Empire. So the predominant philosophy of the day was Greek philosophy. And the early church was influenced by it, you see. Now, Greek philosophers, and it went back to Plato, they believed in a total division between spirit on the one hand and matter on the other. They had two universes. They said the universe is comprised of matter but the universe is also comprised of spirit. And they completely divided them off. And they said, ne'er the twain shall meet. Matter and spirit are totally incompatible. But they went further than that. And they said, spirit is good. But matter is evil. 
Now, this was one of the predominant philosophies of the day, and it crept into the church, sadly, through many of the church fathers. Not through the guys who wrote the Bible, but it crept in within 100, 200, 300 years or so through some of the church fathers. In fact, some of the church fathers who were supposed to, well, I suppose they were pretty good chaps, but were supposed to be in awe of people like Augustine, they were ranting heretics. I'm not saying they weren't believers. They were Christians, but my, some of them were so deceived, it was absolutely incredible. And one of the reasons for it is that they brought in Greek philosophy. In fact, one of the church fathers, I believe this was Justin Martyr, but it was a standard kind of belief amongst a lot of them, because a lot of the early church fathers were converted Greeks, you see. And what they said is that Israel had Moses, but the Greeks had Plato. And they actually thought Plato was a prophet of God to Greece. He wasn't. Plato was a false prophet. But you can see how it mixed in, saying that spirit and matter are divided and that spirit is good, but matter is evil. Now, of course, because it crept into the church, we've never got free of the legacy. This, for instance, is why the Christian church, traditionally, over 2,000 years since it's been going, this is why the Christian church, traditionally, has always been down on sex. This is why the Christian church has got so many sex hang-ups. This is why the Christian church has put out so much false teaching about sex. I'll tell you, sex is, God loves sex. He invented it. One of the most beautiful things in the world is for a husband and wife to make love. And it was God's idea. Can you see Platonism? That's where the hang-ups about sexuality in the church traditionally has, have come from. But there are two things. All right, there. All right. The first one is that the Greeks said that matter uh, was evil. All right. Now, as far as the Bible's concerned, of course, they were wrong on that point. Matter is not evil. Why is matter not evil, I ask you? Answer, because God created it. Physicality was God's idea. God created a material universe. This is why you must never say there's anything wrong with things. Of course there's nothing wrong with things. But a sinful bondage to things, that's something else. But you must never say there's anything wrong with things. There's nothing wrong with the world. The universe is beautiful. It's marred by sin, but the creation, God looked at it and he said it was good. No, matter is not evil in the slightest way because God created it. But you see, all right, we've answered their first point that matter was evil and that... Um, spirit wasn't. We've answered that. But you see, the thing is, how about this idea that there's a division between spirit and matter? We've seen that the idea that spirit was good and matter was evil, we've seen that that doesn't tie up with the Bible. And that's pretty obvious. But what about this idea of the division between spirit and matter that the Greeks traditionally believed in? What does the Bible say about that? Well, you see, the thing is, and this is what you've got to understand, and it's tremendously important, and many, many Christians don't understand it, there isn't a divide between spirit and matter. It doesn't exist. It's a myth. It's a false teaching. It's something, it's an idea that Satan got in the church and has done an awful lot of damage. Look, we're saying, is matter and spirit, are they divided, are they antagonistic to each other? Well, think of it like this. The second person of the Trinity is material. 
Jesus has right now got a body in heaven. Now let me ask you, is he any less spiritual for that? Of course he's not. God became a man. That blows away any divide between spirit and matter that there might have ever been. God, God, who is spirit, can become matter and there is absolutely no antagonism between uh, those two in any way at all. But it's more than that. It's not just that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, has got a body in heaven now. We've seen this here before. He's always had a body. The second person of the Trinity has always had a physical, material body. Where do you think the design for our bodies came from? We're made in the image of God. The second person of the Trinity has always had a body. So then, originally, the second person of the Trinity had a body. Alright? Then, he exchanged that and he came down and he took on a human body. Alright? In the incarnation. So he's come from his own natural body, now into a human body, and after he was killed on the cross and raised again from the dead, he then came up with a glorified human body. But can you see, he's always had a body of one kind or another, and he always will have a body, but the body he will always have now is a glorified human body. There is no divide between spirit and matter. And you see, in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul talks about the resurrection body that we're eventually going to get at the rapture, he calls it a spiritual body. Now this, and it's not Paul's fault, this has simply gone to procreate the myth. Because you see, the thing is that when Paul calls the resurrection body a spiritual body, he doesn't call it a spiritual body because it's somehow less material than a human body. The reason he calls it a spiritual body is simply because it's fitted for the environment of heaven. A human body is no good in heaven, couldn't survive. Therefore, we get a glorified spiritual body. But it doesn't mean it's any less material. Can you see that? And you see, many Christians still have the idea that, that when you die, that, that, that our eternity is kind of wafting around in some divine limbo as disembodied spirits. That couldn't be further from the truth. Our future... From the time we get, from the time of the rapture onwards, is eternity in glorified resurrection physical bodies, just like Jesus, that can eat, can drink, and can make merry, just like Jesus did when he rose again from the dead. Why did Jesus go out of his way to eat broiled fish with them after he rose again from the dead? Because he wanted them to know that he was in a human body, albeit glorified. He wasn't a spectre. He wasn't a phantasm. He wasn't an eidolon, you know, a sort of ghosty. He was physical, and that is what we are going to be in eternity as well. You see, God is pro-matter. God is pro-physicality. The whole thing was his idea from the start. And it was Greek philosophy and not the Bible that procreated this silly idea amongst Christians that somehow spirit is superior to or on a different plane from matter. Rubbish! Spirit is just part of life, the same as matter is. 
they're part of the same universe. There's no divide amongst them in any way at all. Therefore, with the spiritual gifts, the fact that they're spiritual gifts doesn't mean that they're somehow unsolid or, or vastly impractical or, or mystical. Don't confuse Christianity with mysticism. The two have got nothing to do with each other. And with the gifts of the Spirit, it's quite the opposite. You see, the gifts of the Spirit are miracles. Different types of miracles, but they're miracles. And you see, the thing is, a miracle, by definition, is material. Now, I'm going to say that again. A miracle, by definition, is material. Can you see? A miracle happens when a change occurs in the physical universe. When a man with a withered arm grows a perfectly normal one, that's a miracle. By definition, miracles are material. And some Christians have been too anti-material. We mustn't be materialistic when things and the physical universe becomes more important to us than the Lord himself. That's bondage, that's idolatry. But we mustn't be anti-material. That's all God isn't. The gifts of the Spirit are absolutely solid. God is actually there. God actually wants to do things. But the people he actually wants to do things among are actually physical people. Therefore, God has got to do physical things amongst physical people. That is what miracles are. Can you see it? Throw away this idea in your mind that it's spirit versus matter. Throw that away. They're just two sides of the same coin. The coin is the total universe created by God. But the gifts of the spirit, they are material. So if you're going to use spiritual in the wrong sense, well then spiritual gifts is totally the wrong name for them, isn't it? Because they're solid. But when you use spiritual in the Bible way, there's no conflict whatsoever. Of course the gifts of the Spirit are solid. That's the definition of what miracles they are. They're changes in matter in the physical universe wrought by God's power. So we've seen manifestation, but this manifestation of God is for the common good. We've already seen that the gifts are to glorify Jesus. Now that's one test. If ever we're looking at gifts and trying to test them by the Bible, one test as to whether they're genuine or not is that, are they glorifying Jesus? But now we see another test, and the test is that they are for the common good. They are for mutual service. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are one of the ways that we serve each other and the world in which we live to help people. Now when you say help people, you can't really sum up the will of Jesus in a, any clearer way than that. Do you remember James said, he said true religion is visiting the orphans and the widows and things like that. See how practical God is. And the gifts of the Spirit likewise are us to help people, but they're for the common good, they are not for our own personal good. Now what do I mean by that? I mean by that, that they're not there so we can have an ego trip. If God uses you in a gift of the Spirit, you can have two motives. To be a servant and give the glory to Jesus, or to be on an ego trip. Sort of 
everyone looking at you and, oh, wow, weren't they brave to step out in faith like that? Can you see? Oh, the, it's so subtle, our ego, the pride in our heart, we've really got to watch it. They are for service. They are part of the fact that we are called to be servants. So then, firstly, the gifts of the Spirit glorify Jesus. There is no room for pride, all right? It's him doing it, not us, and the gifts of the Spirit are for the common good. They're for other people's benefit. Therefore, there is no room for selfishness either. Now, when we get into verse 8, Paul actually now lists the gifts, all right? And he lists nine of them. Now, in the Bible, there are more than nine, but we are going to be concentrating on the nine in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, all right? But... We're going to start looking at them individually and in detail next week. But for tonight, I, I just want to get this across to you. You see, what we've got to understand is that these gifts of the Holy Spirit are designed for and they are totally adapted to human experience. I'll say that again. They are designed for and they are totally adapted to human experience you see the thing is that the gifts of the spirit are for men and women and children they are not for angels they're for people they are for mankind now then when God designed fish he wanted them to swim in water so he gave them gills right now when God designed birds he wanted them to fly in the air so he gave them wings. They were perfectly fitted for the environment in which they were to live. Can you see what I mean? Everything God creates is perfectly fitted for the environment in which that thing has got to exist. So fish in water have gills. Birds in the air have wings. Now therefore the gifts of the spirit, alright, are designed for use by people. Therefore, they have got to be designed specifically with human experience in mind. Now, when it comes to human experience and the way that we operate as human beings, uh, let me say this. We function as people, human beings, in three areas. The area of thought the area of word and the area of deed. That's how we exist, thought, word and deed. So therefore, it shouldn't come as any surprise to us whatsoever that when we read through this list of nine gifts, we find three which are specifically to do with the tongue, the word gifts, tongues, interpretation and prophecy then we find three that are specifically to do with the mind thought and we have the word of knowledge we have the word of wisdom and we have the discernment of spirits discernment means inner knowing and then we have three gifts specifically to do with deed what I call the action gifts the gift of faith the gift of working of miracles and the gifts of healing. So can you see how these gifts are perfectly adapted 
to human experience because it's human beings that are going to be using them they're for us they are not for angels therefore they are totally fitted now in saying that there are three gifts to each area thought word and deed obviously you can't tie it down that much you'll find overlap like for instance the word of knowledge is to do with the mind and it's a word of knowledge it's to do with the tongue as well like tongues interpretation and prophecy but can you see the general idea can you see the way that God has designed these gifts in order to dovetail perfectly with our experience as human beings. So then, what we're going to do next time is that we're going to start looking in detail at this whole area of the gifts of the Spirit. We've done the introduction, it's been important. Without what we've done tonight, you would end up with imbalance if you just dive straight into the gifts of the Spirit. But we've needed to cover uh, and, and to lay a foundation tonight, and next time we start moving on to the gifts themselves. But let me just say this, we will be homing in and majoring primarily on the three word gifts, tongues, interpretation and prophecy. And the reason that we're going to do this, and I'll explain it all next time, is that the Bible itself majors in on them. There's much more coverage in Paul's teaching on tongues and interpretation and prophecy than any others of the gifts. Therefore, because we want balanced Bible teaching, in this course we are going to give much more coverage to tongues, interpretation and prophecy than to the other ones, just like Paul did, and then we'll get the balance. Let's just pray together before we finish. Father, we ask that, <clears throat> that you'll move in us and that you'll start to set us free in the gifts. Lord, we want to use them. Lord, we want you to flow through us in this way. And Father, I pray that, that, that you'll take your word tonight and that it'll just filter down into our hearts. Lord, it'll take hold of us. It'll prepare us. Lord, that you'll do a work in us through it and that you'll just be opening us up so that we'll be able to move freely and safely in a balanced way in the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you for our fellowship tonight, Lord, for our, our worship and, and, and being able to study your word. And Lord, we pray that you'll continue with us now as we just have a cup of coffee with each other. Lord, just keep blessing us because we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat>